Hello everyone, and welcome to another Hymn Breakdown, a segment here at Life in the Liturgy where we help you gain a better understanding of what you are hopefully singing to fuel your further enjoyment and glorification of God in worship. Let's get after it. This is my Father's world And to my listening ears Oh, nature sings And round me rings The music of the Today's hymn breakdown is going to be on the powerful and somewhat enchanting hymn this is My Father's World, written by Maltby Davenport Babcock. Before getting into any lyrical analysis, let's start with a little background on Babcock and how this song came to be. Reverend Babcock was born in Syracuse, New York, in 1858 and died in Naples, Italy on May 8, 1901, at the young age of 42. In 1937, a Methodist hymnologist, Robert Guy McCutcheon, offered a story about Babcock saying, it is said that when Dr. Babcock, a great lover of nature, would frequently go out in the early morning to the top of a hill north of Lockport, New York, his first pastorate, in order to get a full benefit of the fine view of Lake Ontario and the country lying between, he would say, I am going out to see my father's world. Beyond being a minister, Babcock was also a skilled amateur musician, playing the organ, piano, and violin. He was also a well-built man with a strong back and had athletic achievements in swimming and baseball. One of his poems gives insight into his general approach to life. We are not here to play, to dream, to drift. We have hard work to do and loads to lift. Shun not the struggle, face it, tis God's gift. The hymn This Is My Father's World, like so many others, was really no hymn at all to begin with. It was a poem with 16 stanzas of four lines a much larger textual body than the now three eight-line stanzas we sing. After Babcock's death, his wife gathered the collection of her husband's poems and compiled them into a book called Thoughts for Everyday Living. So, sadly enough, Maltby never heard this hymn himself, which is now beloved by so many. May that be an encouragement to us to plant seeds of our own, even this very day, of which we will never see or taste the fruit of, but will surely nourish some coming generation. The music for this hymn is set to a popular folk tune of the time known as Terabita by a close friend of Babcock, Franklin L. Shepard, in 1915, 14 years after Maltby's death. Interestingly enough, Howard Shore, the composer behind the soundtrack to the Lord of the Rings movies, chose to take the opening seven notes of this tune and place them at the beginning of the song called Concerning Hobbits. This is the uplifting and conciliatory music heard while Bilbo, Frodo, Mary, Pippin, and the like are found merrily tromping around the lush green shire and bag end. When paired with the beautiful, earthly images the hymn draws our attention to, it is easy to see why Shore might have chosen this tune. Maybe he was even hoping listeners would recall the hymn itself, for whenever this tune is played in the background of a scene, it gives the impression that amongst all that is ill in the world of Frodo and his faithful friends, all is or will soon be well. When singing this hymn, my mind's eye is often drawn to the beautiful images seen in the Lord of the Rings, big mountainscapes, streams and rivers, large and open fields and rolling green hills filled with the glories of creation. With some of that background information in mind, let's dive into the lyrics of this hymn and see what nourishment it has for us. Stanza one, line one, this is my father's world. This is the resounding statement of faith and trust that this hymn wants to drive into our very hearts. 
Seeing as how it is repeated six times throughout this hymn, we will seek to do some justice to the weight of this line here at the beginning to properly set the tone for the rest of the lines that follow in response to it. First, this is, not this might be, or wouldn't it all be nice. This is my father's world. No one else can lay claim to the wonderment of creation, humanity, the sun, moon, and stars than God alone. I'm reminded of the strong words found in the statement of faith from the Christian Reformed Church in America known as, Our World Belongs to God, which says in its preamble, As followers of Jesus, living in this world which some seek to control and others view with despair, we declare with joy and trust, Our World Belongs to God. This statement of faith does, of course, find its basis within the scriptures in Psalm 24.1, which says, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it on the waters. God is the uncreated creator of all things. As the Apostle Paul exclaims in a moment of doxology in Romans 11, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. A whole host of anxieties and fears can be undone if one can grasp with all our might onto this one unshakable truth, that this is God's world. From the tiniest cell to Mount Everest to the farthest reaches of the universe, it belongs to Him. But should that great Creator God seem so distant to us as to not really bring us any immediate comfort in the thought that this world is His, the hymn takes this truth a step further. Not only is this God's world, it is our Father's world. God is the creator of all and rules over all, but only to those whom he has called his own and brought into his family through Jesus is he a father. Now, as a school child out at play, often being intimidated by some bully, we can say with full confidence, my dad can beat your dad up, for our father is God. What assurance this gives us as we walk this earth, not as creatures unknown by a distant creator, but as children loved by their heavenly father. So Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. So Paul reminds us that we have received the spirit of adoption by which now we cry, Abba, Father. Christ on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we might have the privilege of crying out, Father, Father, you will never leave me nor forsake me. Perhaps there really is something to approaching God like a child. We may scoff at Sunday school songs like, He's got the whole world in his hands, or my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. But should we ever really move beyond these realities? How much ink has been spilled, and how many philosophical and theoretical rabbit holes has society fallen into over the years, only to simply come out on the other side to realize the basic and fundamental truths a mere child can grasp and understand? Robert Jastrow, in his book, God and the Astronomers, put it perfectly. He says, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, Harry, I've reached the top. he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Oh, that we would learn, like an obedient child does with their father, to take God at his word. One note before we move on to the rest of the hymn. The scriptures do tell us to set our minds on things above, not on things of the earth, Colossians 3.2. If we view this scripture and others like it in the wrong light, 
we may assume that God does not want us to think much of his creation and constantly have our head up in the clouds or on some more, quote, spiritual things. But when we look at this verse more closely, we see that Paul is actually making a different kind of argument. Though we can make any part of creation into an idol, Paul was addressing the fact that we have need of putting to death what is earthly inside of us, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. His argument is that because we have been raised with Christ, we are to seek the things that are above where Christ is. I bring this up because the majority of this hymn actually does focus on the things of this earth, the beauty of creation, birds, trees, skies, and even the evil things we see in the world. I think what Paul would have us do in setting our minds on things above is to be sure we trace back even the wonders of creation back to the Creator. Creation was never meant to be gloried in in and of itself. God deemed creation to be good, even very good, and it is indeed one of the ways that we see every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of Lights, James 1.17. We do not want to be functional Gnostics, those who believe creation and even our bodies are bad and the spirit and the spiritual realm is the only thing that is good. That would be to go against the scriptures. Yes, creation is fallen, but that fall did not undo the nature of creation that God deemed to be good. It fractured it, to be sure. But creation and our physical body and our physical life is still good in its nature, though in need of redemption wrought through Christ, who will not only one day raise our physical bodies to a new and incorruptible life, but will redeem and restore all of creation itself. The final things will be much like the first things. Okay, stanza one, line two. And to my listening ears. Well, there you go. Babcock is clearly not a Gnostic, for his ears are perked and enjoying some glorious sound of creation. As noted earlier, he lived right near one of the most beautiful places in North America, near Niagara Falls. As he went out the door to see his father's world, it's not hard to picture him with a notepad in hand, taking in the sights and sounds of what was going on around him, and writing this poem to the glory of God. The glory of creation is all around us. I often ponder with my own children the grace of God in the simplest things, or maybe it is them that help me to slow down and see them. They are much closer to the earth than I am, after all. Height certainly gives the adult a new vantage point on creation that has a glory of its own, but children often see things much more up close and personal, being closer to the ground. We've often said over a delicious dinner, isn't it great that God gave us taste buds or made food to have different flavors, smells, and colors? He didn't have to make things that way. But the fact that he did speaks to the type of God he is, clearly not boring. Do you slow down to listen? Are you too often found with earbuds in your ears listening to a podcast? Oops, maybe like this one? Uh-oh. There's a symphony of creation all around you, and we miss out on the glory of God when we do not simply stop and take in what's around us, even in the whispers of a calm breeze, the singing of birds, or the joyous noise of children at play. As Jesus often said, he who has ears, let him hear. Stanza 1, line 3. All nature sings and round me rings. I love that. Nature isn't just noise. Nature is a song. Want to hear something cool? Consider the cricket. The nighttime sound of crickets chirping might sound like obnoxious noise to us, but when slowed down, something amazing happens.
just heard was crickets at normal speed over top that same sound being slowed down. This was an experiment done by experimental director, composer, and playwright Jim Wilson. Sounds a lot like singing to me. Stanza 1, line 4. The music of the spheres. Okay, this is another classic example of hymns throwing in lines that throw us for a loop. What is meant by music of the spheres? Well, a quick search on the ever-trusty Wikipedia says this. Music of the spheres, or musica universalis, is an ancient philosophical concept that regards proportions in the movements of celestial bodies as a form of music. Okay. In the words of Michael Scott, Why don't you explain this to me like I'm five? Well, I don't know if that's possible, but here's more information. Pythagoras first identified that the pitch of a musical note is in inverse proportion to the length of the string that produces it, and that intervals between harmonious sound frequencies form simple numeric ratios. Pythagoras proposed that the sun, moon, and planets all emit their own unique hum <laughs> based on their orbital revolution, and that the quality of life on Earth reflects the tenor of celestial sounds which are physically imperceptible to the human ear. Subsequently, Plato described astronomy and music as twin studies of sensual recognition, astronomy for the eyes, music for the ears, and both requiring knowledge of numerical proportions. Babcock, a learned man who graduated from both Syracuse University and Auburn Theological Seminary, would have been no stranger to deep philosophical ideas, and considering his proficiency with music, it's likely he was keenly aware of these findings from Pythagoras and Plato. Marry that with his theological understanding that all truth is God's truth, he beautifully redeems this merely scientific idea and, again, traces the glory of its truth back up to his creator God. If what Plato and Pythagoras discovered is true, it makes much sense to Babcock and his fellow Christians that the God who is said to sing over us, Zephaniah 3.17, would even create the planets and endow creation with songs of their own to sing unto him. Stanza 1, line 5. This is my father's world. As quickly as this line is repeated in the song, so too we quickly forget this truth in our daily lives. We must wake and remind ourselves of this truth daily, if not hour by hour. This is our Father's world. May that be a quick prayer you adopt in the midst of life's various trials. Stanza 1, line 6. I rest me in the thought. Rest? Surely, as we look out on the world, as we sometimes get to from the vantage point of a mountain peak or a long drive through the country— the fact that God is in control of it all, and made it all, should bring the believer a sense of deep rest. Are you without rest? Perhaps that's because you are trying to put yourself in the place of God, feeling as though the weight of the world is all on your shoulders. Look up. Look out. Lift your head from navel-gazing at your own life, and see the God who is truly in control, and rest. It is as the great prince of preachers Charles Spurgeon once said, he who counts the stars and calls them by their names is in no danger of forgetting his own children. Stanza 1, line 7. Of rocks and trees, of skies and seas. Have you ever read the account of God answering back to Job? Yeah, it's humbling to say the least. The mere thought that there are rocks, mountains, trees that grow as deep as they do tall, a massive sky above, and a seemingly endless ocean should be enough for us to humble ourselves before God and worship Him in awe. We, like Job, may be able to convince other men of either our greatness or our plight in life, but when we stand before the Maker of all, He is the one who is the judge. As Isaiah said, who has given counsel to the Lord? No one. 
Creation also serves as a way to show us how small we really are and how big God is, to draw us to humility and rest. As we often confess in gatherings at my church, you are God and we are not. Help us believe this. Let's close out the first stanza. Stanza 1, line 8. His hands the wonders wrought. Psalm 19, 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Psalm 8, 3 says, When I consider your heavens the work of your fingers. Isaiah 64, 8 says, We are the clay, and you are the potter, and all of us are the work of your hands. God was intimately involved in his creation and still is. He was not and is not distantly removed. He is not like a clockmaker who built a clock, wound it up, and let it go for the rest of time. He is like a shepherd who guides his sheep with his hand, or a gardener who gets down in the dirt. The hands that wrought the wonders of creation are the same fatherly hands that guide and hold his children. On to stanza two. Stanza two, line one. This is my father's world. As previously mentioned, every stanza of this hymn begins in this way. This repetition is a powerful tool when used well. Again, picture Maltby walking around Niagara Falls, noticing all sorts of new things in creation. It's so childlike in the best sense. Dad, this is yours too? Dad, you made this? To which God replies, yes, son, I did. Abraham Kuyper said it best. There's not a square inch in the whole creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Stanza 2, line 2. The birds their carols raise. One of the sadder realities of growing older is that we seem to lose our sense of wonder, imagination, and enchantment with this world. We hear birds on a beautiful spring morning after a long and dreary winter and are hardly pleased that they have awakened us with their song. G.K. Chesterton spoke of this loss of imagination in his work, The Ethics of Elfland, saying, When the businessman rebukes the idealism of his office boy, it is commonly in some such speech as this. Ah, yes. When one is young, one has these ideals in the abstract and these castles in the air. But in middle age, they all break up like clouds. And one comes down to belief in practical politics, to using the machinery one has and getting on with the world as it is. Chesterton continues on a little later. We talk as if the fact that trees bear fruit were just as necessary as the fact that two and one trees make three. But it is not. There is an enormous difference by the test of fairyland, which is the test of the imagination. You cannot imagine two and one not making three, but you can easily imagine trees not growing fruit. You can imagine them growing golden candlesticks or tigers hanging on by the tail. What's GK getting at? Our world is not nearly enchanted enough. We don't think like G.K. or Babcock. We, at some age or season of life, turn into curmudgeons. We trade in our fairy tales for textbooks. Some person wrongfully told us, it's time for you to enter the, quote, real world. Grow up, kid. Birds don't sing carols. They make annoying noises. And those sounds are all just things that can be clearly explained by science. Is that really how God made us to perceive his creation? Were we made to look at an apple tree and just sort of shrug and say, it's an apple tree. Of course it grows apples. I can even explain it to you. A seed was planted, the soil was watered, the seed broke open, the roots grew down, and the stems grew up, and the sun and rain fed it until the branches grew apples. Yes, science! I don't think so. Instead, I think we are better off to believe in a more Chestertonian way and look at an apple tree and say, that's an apple tree, 
and it grows apples because it's magic. And it could have just as well grown candlesticks, but that's not the type of magic that this tree does. So yes, Maltby is right. Birds indeed sing carols to the glory of their creator. Stanza 2, line 3. The morning light, the lily white. My pastor said something a while back while preaching on the book of Genesis and in the creation account uh, that has stuck with me. It was something like this. Just like a child never seems to weary of being tossed in the air by their father, but rather says, again, again, daddy. So God never wearies of telling the son, do it again each morning. The very morning light as the sun rises is a declaration of God's decree that creation is good. He does not weary of giving creation another day. Since the galaxies were spoken into creation out of nothing or ex nihilo, I always imagine some all-powerful Harry Potter spell when I say that. God has not stopped finding immense pleasure in what he has made. So how much more should we, the benefactors of this glorious creation, awake with the sun and say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Jesus reminds us of the lilies. Jesus had this sort of imagination that traced creation back up to God. He said, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Consider the lilies. Look at the birds of the air. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Look around at creation and learn the lessons it can teach through its parables. It's a powerful way to bring glory to God and enjoy him. Stanza 2, line 4. Declare their maker's praise. Child of God, if creation, who has no real voice and no real words nor real cognitive ability to know God the way that you do, yet praises him nonetheless, how much more should you praise him who have been made in his image with a mind to know him and a heart to love him and a will to serve him? As Jesus said to the Pharisees who wanted him to rebuke those giving him praise on Palm Sunday, if these are silent, the very stones would cry out. Not only should we be joining in the song of creation in praise to our creator, we, as the pinnacle of his creation, should be leading the band. Stanza 2, line 5. You guessed it. Bingo. This is my father's world. Each time this line is sung, the truth of it should compound upon itself as the hymn unfolds the wonder of creation. The truth should get more solidified in the worshiper's mind, eventually sinking down into the heart where true belief happens. Stanza 2, line 6. He shines in all that's fair. Though, as we've noted, this world is indeed fallen, the scriptures still commend us to this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So there is still goodness in this world that reflects its original design and maker. And we are to seek it out. We can see God's fairness in both his particular grace as well as his common grace. Particular grace, or saving grace, is that which is set apart for those who have been effectually called by God, saved, redeemed, and are now a part of his covenant family and subsequent blessings. Common grace refers to the fact that God, as the scriptures say, sends rain on the just and the unjust. Though the unsaved man cannot know the blessings of particular saving grace, he is not so corrupt as to be able to do no good as God allows him, 
or to not receive the general benevolent blessings that his creation offers liberally to all. Food is a grace of God. Sunlight is a grace of God. A beating heart and breath in the lungs is a grace. God shines through these things, and many more, by saving undeserving sinners and by patiently bestowing temporal graces upon those who do not embrace him as Lord. Now, was this what Babcock had in mind? Perhaps, or perhaps not. That's the beauty, and sometimes the danger, of poetry and lyrics. Sometimes the meaning can transcend what the author originally intended. Stanza 2, line 7. In rustling grass, I hear him pass. Once again, there seems to be nothing in all creation to the hymn writer that is not totally enchanted or sent by God himself. Perhaps he is recalling the now far-off Garden of Eden where it was said that God walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. The rustling grass should remind us that that was how things were always meant to be, and one day will be again, and until that day we have the assurance that not only will we walk again with God in the new heavens and the new earth, but he resides within us by his Holy Spirit. When the disciples had sorrow over Christ returning to the Father, he reassured them and told them that if he did not go, he could not send the Helper. As close as Christ seemed to be to them in his new resurrected flesh, he intended to draw all the more near to them, even to live inside of them. And so it is for all who believe. We do not walk alone. Stanza 2, line 8. He speaks to me everywhere. Surely, creation testifies in its own voice about the majesty and glory of God. It is, as Paul says again in Romans, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Hebrews 1 tells us another way that God speaks to us. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And, of course, God speaks to us through his word. Creation, Christ, and the word of the scriptures all help us to see that God speaks to us everywhere with the help of the Holy Spirit. He who spoke in the beginning is still speaking today. On to the final stanza. Stanza 3, line 1. Here it is again. This is my Father's world. Now, I won't belabor the point here because it's clarified in the following line why we must keep singing this truth. Stanza 3, line 2. Oh, let me ne'er forget. How forgetful we really are. We must remind our souls, like King David did so often in the Psalms, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. To forget that this world belongs to God means to forget that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that he is the author of the story of creation and redemption, and no one else can thwart the ending he has written. Stanza 3, line 3. That though the wrong seems oft so strong. Is this not the heart of the reason we doubt God is in control? We look at the world, the pain, the injustice. We look at our own lives, our own sin. We look at the sin done to us and countless other calamities and think, the wrong is awful strong. We ask ourselves perplexing questions like, if God is good and in control, why does fill-in-the-blank happen? We doubt God's sovereignty and providence. We doubt that he is working all things for good. We cannot see how evil can work for good. 
Yet, in a moment of divine clarity, God lifts our eyes to the worst injustice and atrocity the world has ever seen, the cross of Christ. And we see that if God can work that for good, indeed no ultimate good could have been done without that ultimate evil, then surely he can turn lesser evils for whatever good purpose he intends. Stanza 3, line 4. God is the ruler yet. Indeed, he is. God is ruling and reigning as we speak. He is bringing all things under the subjection of Jesus Christ. His kingdom is taking ground and his people are taking dominion under his sovereign power and rule. The curse of the fall is even now being undone as the gospel is proclaimed and as Christians take the implications of the gospel out into every corner and facet of life. And one day, the final enemy of death, which Christ alone can vanquish, will be stomped out once and for all. Stanza 3, line 5. One last time. This is my Father's world. The worshiper is now singing in full-hearted confidence that this fact is true, despite all that may seem contrary to it, filling them with the type of unshakable and anti-fragile joy that James spoke of when he said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Stanza 3, line 6. Why should my heart be sad? Oh, how I love when questions are posed in songs. This is a somewhat rhetorical question at this point, as we have now reached a point of full confidence in the relative truth proclaimed that this is our Father's world. This is a taunting question directed at our own heart. What reason do you have to be sad if God is in control? What reason do we have to be sad, especially in an ultimate sense? Why should we sulk around? Too many Christians walk around with a defeatist mentality, as if the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and we must just sit around and wait for it to happen. This is not the eschatological hope the scriptures teach. Haven't we read the ending? God wins. God is reigning, and we will reign with him. Take heart. Weeping may tarry for the night, but oh, how joy comes in the morning to those who remember that God is indeed on his throne. Stanza 3, line 7. The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. Now we are in full-blown doxology mode. We are taken up from the rocks, trees, birds, and grass to the very heavenly throne room of God where Jesus sits on his throne. Because we've done well to trace the glory of creation up to the Creator, praise has reached its rightful destination where the seraphim, saints, and angels sing their unending song of praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we join in with the chorus and the heavens that are ringing the praises of King Jesus. Stanza 3, line 8. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Do you hear this final statement? The implications of the reign of God Almighty mean gladness upon the earth. That gladness is to be experienced now. Yes, a day will come when that gladness will not be mixed with the bitterness of sin. But God is reigning now, as he will be forever. And for that, we can be glad today. So next time you are in church, gathering with the saints, let your gladness be known. Sing louder than all. If everyone else be dismayed over some evil, some sin, some besetting and earthly care, your joyous praise is needed all the more to admonish them to look up and see that God reigns. The Lord is
Let the 